Chicano Tribune, Thursday, 17th of October, 2019, and Gorda Moore, The Great Famine. When we were kids at school, every week we'd have a collection for the black babies. Probably not a description one could use these days. But there was always a need for giving up our pennies towards some much-needed cause when there was starvation around the third world at the time. In the 1960s, there was famine in China after the revolution, then Biafra, Indonesia, Ethiopia, Nigeria, and Chad. There always appeared to be famines which caused the deaths of millions, suffering on an unbearable scale with pictures of skeletal children on our screens. Of course, famine had been part of the world since time immemorial, from ancient Greece to Byzantine, Egypt, England, throughout Europe in the 12th century, Mexico, Italy in the 16th century, Scotland, ironically, in 1690, at the end of the 19th century in Brazil, China and Africa, Iran at the end of World War I, Russia after the revolution and World War II, Sudan and Somalia in the 90s. And no more than in our own country between 1845-1850, the years of Engarda Moor are imprinted on the mind of every Irish person. Growing up, it appeared to belong to the midst of history, but when you get a little older, you realise it wasn't much more than a century previously. Next year will be the 175th anniversary. For a long time, we really didn't talk about it. There was a failure of failure about it. We were a bit embarrassed almost, as if we were like a third world country. In the past half century across the world and in Ireland, there's been a reawakening of consciousness about the famine <clears throat> and how it was caused by our nearest neighbour. There's been great research which has revealed much about the period. Statues have been erected in the USA, Australia, and in present ones planned for Scotland, a little controversial, but they also had their own famine in the Highlands at the same time. Here at home there have been many memorials created around the country. No longer have we that inferior complex. We have pride in our history and recognise the part played by the famine, which denuded the country of over two million people. Half dying of hunger, the other half migrating to Britain and the New World. It was a devastating period in Irish history which tore the heart out of the rural countryside. For the previous century or more, as a nation, we were treated like the Native Americans. The plantation had been followed by the Williamite Wars, then the penal laws, and at the end of the 18th century, the failed rebellion of the United Irishmen and the encompassing of the country as part of the UK within the Act of Union in 1801. The long 19th century witnessed Daniel O'Connell bring a sense of pride back to the people with emancipation and those monster rallies failed to bring a repeal of the Union. But then the horror of a failed potato crop for four years in a row from 45 to 49 led to the virtual destruction of a people that the famine wasn't really a famine as such was forgotten in the decades ahead. But the reality was that there was adequate food within the country but it wasn't made available to the poor who needed it most. The starving poor food was transported out of the country to England by the cartload and boat Starving people were admonished by the church and others for trying to steal food. It was wrong to steal for dying families. 
1845 appears to be a long, long time ago, but if you really think about it, it's not so long at all. A fact I discovered a few years ago when looking at the 1911 census online. On the night of Sunday, April 2nd, 1911, the census forms at the old blacksmith's cottage in Dune were filled in by all who were in the house at the time. The form declares my grandfather Johnny Russell was there, as was a younger brother, an old aunt, a neighbour who lived with him, and my great-grandmother Ellen. A few things caught my attention. They all put down English as their language, rather than Gilga. A few couldn't write. But the most significant thing was that my grand great-grandmother was 77 in 1911, so that would have made her birth around 1834, a decade before the famine struck, around the time of Catholic emancipation, almost almost 50 years after that census. I was present at my grandfather's funeral in 58. That's how close we are to history. My great-grandfather, grandmother was about 10 when the famine struck. As poor peasant smallholders, the potato would have been their stable dead, but somehow they survived the famine. Well, she survived at least. I'm not sure how the rest of the family fared out. She was the only one of that generation to survive into the 20th century and signed the census form of 1911. One of the major impacts of the famine was its part in the destruction of the Irish language. It had been declining steadily in the previous century and the introduction of national schools in the 1830s dealt a death blow to our language. Education might have been the overall ideal, but a byproduct was destruction of the Gaelic language. School kids weren't allowed to use Irish in the classroom and teachers appointed who hadn't got a word of Irish. Children were beaten if they used their native tongue. Then the famine arrived and the worst hit areas were the western coastline from Galway to Donegal, where the language had survived strongest and was most vibrant, especially Connemara and Guidor. But these areas were badly hit during the famine and the language suffered accordingly. Before the famine there were approximately 4 million native speakers. 50 years later there were less than a million. British reaction to the famine beggars belief. While Ireland was a part of the Union at the time, it was treated like a colony in the Third World. The famine Queen Victoria donated 2,000 to famine relief, while the Turkish Sultan offered 10,000 but was advised to lower it to a thousand not to embarrass the Queen. Anecdotally, Victoria visited Galway in 1849 and the university named after her was opened, Queen's College. 160 years later, I had entered the hallowed corridors of academia. Thank God they changed the name and the statue to her memory dumped around the back of the Earl of Maxima. Although it could have been worse, the good postgrads at UCC buried the statue of the famine queen after independence in Rebel Cork. The most infamous name from the famine period is Charles Edward Trevelyan, he who apparently we stole his corn. This despicable excuse for a human being was later knighted for its efforts during the famine. 130 workhouses were built during the period. They were designed to be basic with little home comforts little different to being in jail for the inhabitants. One example was at Uchterard where a workhouse was built and ironically in the past month there have been protests from locals about a direct provision centre for migrants from Syria and Africa. Why were we so reliant on the humble spot? Possibly it goes back to penal law times 
and the denial of basic human rights to Irish Catholics, religion under threat, education denied, empty to the professional class banned. For the majority of poor Irish, there became a reliance on small plots of land, and the potato became the source of life. Planted in lazy beds, so dubbed by the English in a put-down manner, but actually a very practical form of working poor land in rural Ireland. Also, when the blight hit the potato four years in a row, it decimated the population. To further make matters worse, American Indian meal was imported, but it was useless as a substitute for the Irish palate. Ironically, before the blight destroyed the potato crop, it had provided a great source of nutritional value. The Irish had always been observed as a healthy people, and sure, as we all know right up to the present era, the big pot of spuds in the range would be a welcome sight in any house. The difference between 1845 and 2019, if we had the blight destroy the crops a day, we could always pick up a takeaway from Charlie McGee's chippy or the Four Lanterns. The potato is a sort of an Irish iconic symbol, much like the shamrock or Guinness, but it actually wasn't originally a native root vegetable at all. Apparently it was a starchy tuber found in Latin America. Spanish, Spanish colonizers found it in their early attempts to subdue the native Indians. And then later Sir Walter Raleigh, legend has it, brought the, the spud back to his land in Cork. What actually happened to cause the famine? In 1845, the blight turned the potato leaves black and rotten. Apparently, it was an airborne fungus found in ships bringing potatoes from America to Europe. The fungus attacked the healthy potato stems and turned them into mush in the damp weather. One year's crop failure would have been manageable, but the fungus could survive the winter and attack the following year's crop, which brought disaster. In the first year of the famine, three million quarters of corn were exported to Britain. 250,000 sheep, 500,000 pigs, 200,000 cattle, 50,000 firkins of butter, 10,000 calves. It's estimated that 3 million animals were exported between 1845 and 50. We had more than enough food to feed 9 million people, but the powers that be continued to export while the population starved. As well as a starving population, there was the issue of evictions. It's estimated in the five years over half a million people were evicted and thatched cottages tumbled to the ground. The crowbar brigade of local lackeys and police would tumble in the roof so that the tenants couldn't return. One sickening aspect of the whole situation was that well-off farmers would take over land and derelict cottages. There was always a cohort in society who were without principle unless you count greed as a principle. It was a horrific period in our history. Our population dropped from near 9 million to 7, and then continually dropped until the time of independence. And the population in what became the Free State wasn't much more than 3 million. We are the only country in the world where the population didn't increase from the 19th century for another 150 years until the middle of the 20th century. An iconic image from the time is the workhouse, usually close to a fever hospital and also a dead house. This was the last chance saloon, but it was for the living dead. Any possessions, land or cattle had to be given up to gain admittance to this den of iniquity, a disease-ridden establishment which scarred the country from the 1840s until independence. There was no escape in this living hell unless one was able to take the migrant boat to Britain, the US or Australia. 
Estimates in the decade from 1845 have found that almost 2 million left for America and Australia and a million went to England and Scotland. The coffin ships, as they were dubbed, carried a cargo which was decimated by one quarter before it reached its destination. One in four immigrants would die and their bodies tossed into the ocean. Ellis Island opened for the business of documenting immigrants in 1892. 400,000 passed through it in the first year, including many, many Irish, rising to 600,000 at its peak. 12 million in total up to 1954, and history and folklore tell us that Annie Moore from Cork was the first migrant to be processed on Ellis Island, and her memories preserved for posterity with statues in Cove and on Ellis Island. The song Isle of Hope, Isle of Tears recalls her journey. Britain also became a destination for migrants, especially after the so-called famine and up till the end of the 19th century. All the major cities received a flood of Irish migrants and in Scotland a massive flow of Donegal migrants arrived in Glasgow, living in conditions probably worse than they left behind and also experiencing religious and xenophobic hostility. Protestant church and charities set up soup kitchens to feed the poor but on condition the recipients denied their Irishness and Catholic faith. This prophesying created great bitterness, and those who converted were classed as supers, and the epithet taking the soup was attached to families for generations afterwards. On the other hand, the Quakers, a friendly society, gave great support throughout the famine, and afterwards helping out the poor, hungry and depraved, providing a better standard of living than the poor house. Another source of great support came from an unusual source, the Choctaw Indians back in 1847. Despite being treated abysmally in their native country, they sent a massive donation to help the famine victims in Ireland. In recent times, that donation was recognised by the Irish government. Most famously, Buller Walford from Ballymote created a football club to raise funds to provide soup kitchens in the Calton area of Glasgow, mostly to feed the Donegal migrants after the famine. A horrendous time in our history, but one which isn't recognised by all, especially in British society. A few years back when I was at the university in Malta, an academic said to me, that's the problem with Ireland, everything begins with a famine. His attitude stemmed from him being domiciled in an island which was under British rule for 150 years from 1801. A certain ignorance prevailed. Not everyone, of course, in the UK has that denial mindset. Twenty years ago, the then British PM, Tony Blair, echoed the thoughts of those who survived the trauma. The famine was a defining moment in the history of Ireland. It left deep scars. One million people died in what was then part of the richest and most powerful nation in the world. That causes pain as we reflect on it today. Those who governed in London failed the people, standing by while a crop failure turned into a massive human tragedy. We must not forget such a tragic event and pay tribute to the Irish who triumphed in the face of catastrophe. Acknowledgements to Jerry Mavihill, The Truth Behind the Irish Famine, 1845-1852.